Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. In your week in IndyCar listener Q&A, we are starting this recording on a Thursday afternoon at 3.56 p.m., a very rare home appearance on a Thursday. Had to cancel the day's activities for my amazing wife. Nonetheless, able to actually catch up on something that I've been trying to get to here. Our listener Q&A brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Uh, I'll just say this, and it's said with love. Y'all are crazy! <laughs> we put together all of your questions for good old me, and I believe we have a new record. Almost 5,000 words worth of questions. And there is no way I'm going to be able to get to all of them without this being, I don't know, the 12 hours of IndyCar listener Q&A brought to you by a lot of caffeine and other things to keep me up. So I'm going to do a lot of compression here. No surprise, big surprise. Fernando Alonso, Honda, what happened? Andretti Autosport. Boy, we have questions on every variation imaginable on this subject. So I'm going to do my best to cover off everything that you all have asked, some additional things I have learned since these questions came in at the top of the show. And we're going to rock and roll with lots of other things. If you listen to our Week in IndyCar guest episode with our man Tony Kanon, A, he is awesome, as usual. Hopefully you enjoyed that. B, Mentioned at the outset there that here tomorrow, Friday, we're going to have the collision of announcements with Errol McLaren SP doing their livery unveil and also with James Hinchcliffe announcing something which we think is his IndyCar team plan, something like that. And the fact that these announcements have been stacked on top of one another, it's a wee bit cheeky, I would say. Trying to think what else. We finally had our beautiful French fry confirmed at AJ Foyt Racing, something we've known about. Dalton Kellett there as well. Y'all have sent in some questions here about young Dalton and this team, and I'm going to do my best to answer them as honestly as I can without being a complete, this is an earmuffs moment, asshole. The team already thinks I hate them. Uh, they actually don't even respond to my emails or calls or anything. So they think I hate them largely because of what I do here. But uh, let's just say that I had a great conversation yesterday with a friend while just before we started recording his podcast. And we both agreed that, you know what? It's okay. If a team or a person or whomever thinks you're a complete a-hole but they think that because you're erring on the side of being truthful instead of just giving them a pass all the time, not saying the truth, it's okay. And you kind of have the other two aspects as well, which were raised, again, before we started recording. One is, hopefully, you all, myself included, try and build up whatever amount of credibility in your profession it's really easy to blow that if you start blowing smoke. And especially when fans can look at a team and go, 
they're pretty terrible right now. Not saying we hate them, not saying they can't be better, but my eyes tell me that what I see is bad. Well, if you say otherwise, and the people in the grandstands can see it, and you actually try to feed them nonsense, that's a pretty good way to not have any more credibility. So, regardless, even though that fine team has some fine people on it, uh, we're going to try and answer these questions as best we can without being a complete jerk, even though it's probably just going to lead to the team thinking even more that they're hated, but we're just going to err towards honesty as much as we can. So that's that little bit. Hoping this Hinch news tomorrow is going to provide some clarity on what he's doing. I don't know if there's a betting line in Las Vegas, but everything that I've been hearing for a little bit now, even though the door has opened to an opportunity at Indy with Andretti, keep hearing that we should not be surprised if Ray Hull Letterman Lanigan Racing is indeed the team name that comes out of young James Hinchcliffe's mouth tomorrow. So we'll see if that proves to be accurate. Let's get to our man, Jeremiah Morell. Why are we getting to Jeremiah Morell? Well, first of all, he and his wife, fine people. Also, with what we do here on the show on a weekly basis, courtesy of TorontoMotorsports.com, we give away a t-shirt or a hat or some stickers, maybe all of them, to whomever's question from the previous episode got the most likes. And that was Jeremiah when we had Ed Carpenter on last week. He asked Ed, back when Ed was full-time, what was his favorite and least favorite road course in the IndyCar series? So send me a direct massage, Jeremiah. I think I already have your email address, but nonetheless, send it to me anyways. We'll get you connected with torontomotorsports.com, and they'll send you stuff. If you're first time listening here, I lovingly refer to this show as my unpolished turd. There are going to be errors. There's going to be misspeakings. There's going to be a bunch of stuff where you go, wow, that's anything but super professional, to which I say, ding, 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 there you go. That's why it's my unpolished turd. I really don't edit anything out unless it's just too egregious uh and it doesn't happen a lot and as of a couple months ago i've started buying and and cracking open a beer while doing the show and this week we have one of my favorites samuel smith's nut brown ale my beer drinking policy if i can see through it i won't drink it certainly applies holding this up to the light It's just a dark chasm of awesomeness. So thank you, Mr. Smith, for this beautiful, beautiful bottle that I'm going to enjoy. Won't get drunk off of one bottle. Might sound like I'm drunk at multiple points during the show because of the errors. It's me. It's an accurate representation of who I am. So let's get going. Let's go. Right. All right. We're going to count down to Fredapalooza in three, two, one. All right, I might need more than one. So, main topic here myself, my racer magazine colleague, Chris Medland, who covers Formula One for us, held a little story for a couple days. We had heard that this, it's going to happen, it's a done deal. 
with Fernando Alonso driving for Michael Andretti at the Indy 500 in a Honda-powered entry, all ready to go, all ready to be announced. I think many of you had heard that. Some folks had gone as far as writing. This is a done deal. It's going to be announced. Here it comes. And I don't want to claim that there was extraordinary skill in this, but we had heard that that might be a little bit premature. And it turned out that it was. And when we had all this buttoned up, we learned that our dear friend John Andretti lost his four-year battle with colon cancer. So out of respect to John, that story was tucked away for a couple of days. And I believe it was intentionally rolled out on Sunday day of the Super Bowl here in America, where we're talking away of least amount of spotlight to be put on something, saving it for a Sunday, first of all, when there's no racing taking place, uh, at least in the U.S., and B, when the Super Bowl is coming up. Uh, I must applaud the editors and the folks who chose to do that, because while sitting on that news forever was not an option, uh, I do just have to tip my cap and say, it was a good call. So having learned about this, having known about it, having sat on it, having confirmed that this thing was not going in the right direction, and then having heard, no, it's done. It's done as in finished, not done as in going to happen. That's when uh, Chris and I, led by Chris, put uh, put that story. So it was good, good story chasing by Chris, and then he and I collaborated on the final piece that went up, and that uh, has, frankly, that's going to consume the first part of the show, and hopefully uh, some of the stuff will be interesting for you. Going to throw in one caveat, and as I mentioned with the stuff regarding Foyt and Kellett and whatever else, always striving to be as honest as possible. Keep in mind, can't always be completely open with everything, though. Meaning, part of what I do, what Chris does, what every reporter does, is there are things that you can't always get into or answer because it would betray sources. So, because you all are sharp and (laughs) know the sport and send in awesome questions every week, no surprise that some of the questions are really freaking awesome, and I wish I could answer every single one of them to uh, 100% completeness. I'll just say this. I'm going to do my best. Just please understand that uh, there might be some things that I can't. Starting with Bryson Frank, this covers off a lot of folks who ask similar things. MP, what changed from the start of negotiations between Andretti and Alonzo to now? Were HPD not communicating with Honda Japan? throughout the negotiations, or was this always going to be the response from Honda Japan? Also, where do both Alonzo and Andretti go from here? As I have heard, Bryson, and many of you who sent in variations on this question, so as I've heard, that's different from me being at the table and being able to say this is exactly what happened. The accounts that I've heard go something along the lines of HPD was 
more than confident it could get an engine for Michael, for Fernando. Getting Michael an extra motor for the Indy 500, not a problem. Just signed a extension last year, I believe it was. They're obviously, you know, the the most threatening member of the Honda family in terms of championship fights right now. So no worries there. The Alonzo part, that was an interesting one. As we'd heard a couple of months ago, uh, the new leadership at HPD was absolutely believing they could do something that was not before possible, and that was get a motor for Fernando. So as I understand this, Bryson, we have new leadership believing they can do something that was shot down last year. The whole reason why McLaren went its own way didn't end up partnering with the Aero SPM team, which is Honda powered at that time, or Andretti or any other Honda powered team. Honda Japan said no. Uh, change of leadership at HPD here in America. HPD here, they're the ones in charge of this whole IndyCar stuff. Their own production facility based here in Southern California. In Southern California, they are their own entity. But there's this one lingering thing that isn't really under their control, Bryce, and, and that is Fernando Alonso. The comments he made a couple of years ago disparaging comments about Honda's Formula One engine, which is produced from Honda Japan, the mothership. So this is where this weird kind of attachment comes in. If this were any other driver, HPD in Southern California, like five miles away from where the the Herta family lives at most, would just say yay or nay to whomever. I mean, truly doesn't have to go anywhere else other than HPD to make that decision. Well, not with Fred, not with Fernando. And so as I understand this, there were assurances given to the Andretti team. No, there's no question going to be able to get this done, which then led the Andretti team to react and go chase sponsors and get sponsors and get things to a point to where the Tuesday before last, as I have heard, an announcement was going to be made. And then the absolute stop button was hit. So as I understand this, Bryson, we have a situation where uh, something was assured to Andretti Autosport Andretti Autosport reacted by saying, awesome, we can do this, great. Went and found the sponsors, got all that lined up, went as far, as I've heard, as getting all the quotes necessary from sponsors and team principals and driver, just everything to go into a press release, everything to go into a formal announcement. That's how far this went. So this wasn't kind of, well, we're halfway there. Maybe we'll see. Yeah, go see if you can get someone that might want to sponsor this. And, you know, we'll check and see if it's possible. Don't get anything formal done. Wasn't the case, as I've been told. I do believe, based on what has come back, that the actual formal 
request communication thumbs up or thumbs down however you might want to phrase it with the mothership didn't happen until the very end and so the assuredness that was presented to Andretti Autosport was I think an assumption found out that assumption was totally incorrect after the Andretti team had gone through a lot of effort and seemingly had Fernando Alonso all ready to go. So as I understand it, this was a last-minute formal request to the mothership, which was denied. And all that I have heard since that took place, and also bearing in mind time of grieving, right? With Michael, Mario, and everybody, Jeff, and uncles, nieces, brothers, sisters, wife, children. I mean, it's a terrible time for the Andretti family. Having this go down at the same time has certainly not made things easier. So I've just heard that Michael has been incandescent with rage regarding all of this. Definitely a general feeling of if you truly didn't have the okay, how in the bleep did you let me get this far? And so then you have the follow-up process, right? Embarrassing process as well. Having to call sponsors and say, you know all that work we put into things? You know, the livery design and the quotes and the release and the this and the all the things we set in motion, all that is no longer possible for reasons that have nothing to do with you or me, really. But got to remember who's delivering that message, right? Uh, HPD isn't calling those sponsors saying, hey, by the way, we're sorry. That's Michael and his team having to carry that. This is just not a not a great, great scenario. I would not be speaking out of turn by saying, I don't know if this one's going to be forgotten or glossed over. Uh, there's still a contractual obligation between both sides to go racing for a couple of years in IndyCar. This, uh, this one might linger a little bit. So, as I understand it, Yeah, uh, everything done on the Andretti side was done in full good faith. No silliness, no over-assumption of what was going to be real. And here we go. Uh, Let me see. Let's get to some of the other items on this topic, because there are a lot of little factions, or or I shouldn't say factions, little side items and little facts and such to, uh, to get to here. So here's another angle that came up quite a bit from folks in reaction. And you might have seen me on the good old book faces and tweeters and whatnot pushing back a bit. And it was blaming Honda. So the Fernando Alonso Honda Japan thing created by Fred, created by Fernando. No one else created this scenario but him. And this is where things get a little bit weird. Not weird, but uh, I don't fully grasp this reaction. Uh, But doesn't mean I'm right. Just means I don't fully grasp it. So let me get into it here. 
and this is the Honda should just get over it. They're acting childish view of things. Uh, Joseki 100, our friend from the Reddit IndyCar group, says, I'm confused by how far HPD and Andretti got without Honda Japan stepping in and vetoing it. Um, long story short, he says, I know your opinion about the infamous GP2 engine comment, which Fernando made a few years ago about how poor Honda's still somewhat new Formula One engine was performing uh, over the radio to his engineer, I believe it was. Uh, he says, I know your opinion about that infamous GP2 engine comment, but we cannot deny that the 2015 Honda engine was the single worst engine I ever saw in my lifetime in a top-class formula. Joseki says, admittedly, I'm pretty young, so it's just the last 15 years. I'll just share with you, Joseki, it's by no means the worst F1 engine ever. But in your lifetime of following F1, uh, you probably probably can't argue. He says, while Alonzo and Jensen Button collected more than 570 grid penalty places that season honda's boss was saying that their engine was on par with renault and close to ferrari and he says probably looking at the 1985 season on vhs i would imagine now that's funny uh he says rant uh on the gp2 engine comment aside i'm sure we can all agree that the losing party is us the indycar fans someone denied us the chance of seeing a top class driver and a top team at the indy 500 if only this firm no arrived last september I'm sure Alonzo could have approached Ed Carpenter Racing before all the seats were taken there. So I'm going to pivot off of this a little bit, also throw in Stuart Arith, uh, and says, you know, was the recent interview with Fernando where he said he regretted making the GP2 engine comment, uh, but went on to say he was more regretful as regards to it being made public, as it was said to his engineer. Was this supposed to be an apology of sorts to Honda that hasn't uh, maybe gone the way Honda wanted? etc etc he says i think this was meant to be an apology but for whatever reason i just hasn't come across in that manner so i don't want to get into a whole long dissertation on this but i will mention the really truly salient points hey as americans here in good old america we have certain cultural touchstones if you cross this line we get super grumpy and want to bop you on the head or tell you to F off and never come back ever, ever, ever. There are certain things every culture has that is uniquely theirs, both in ways of honoring and respecting one another and disrespecting and tearing down and destroying bonds between one another. Fernando Alonso driving for a British team powered by a proud Japanese organization like Honda. There's no, like, top-secret thing to the fact that loyalty and respect and honor is really a core component of working with a Japanese company. If we think of the words spoken, the tearing down of this very bad Honda engine that everyone knew was bad. There's no question. Fernando didn't need to say it was bad for folks to know it was bad. It was evident to all. Having been fortunate to grow up uh, with a couple of Japanese exchange students that lived with us, 
in my teens, having been fortunate to have a gentleman by the name of George Obana, first-generation Japanese-American, uh, who was kind of like a second father to me. My father worked pretty much seven days a week to support us at our shop, and with him not there quite often, uh, George, I mean, honestly, I did his, went to as many races with George, went to the firing range, went to here, went to there. You know, George was uh, as much of a father to me as my own for a long, long time. And having been welcomed into his family, I'm very fortunate to have had many years of my youth spent learning and being uh, embraced within Japanese culture. And I just have to say here, if Fernando was looking for a way to be excommunicated, <laughs> he, he absolutely hit a home run here. Uh, the one thing about working with a company like Honda is you, I, you are either all in or all out there. There's no middle. If we have a horrible product and everyone is working a million hours to try and fix this, be a part of that solution. Yelling at us, shaming us in public, even though, as Fernando has said, it was meant to be a private comment. Okay, but it wasn't. It didn't turn out to be that way. That's the exact thing you do to have a company like Honda say, you're dead to us. Not just for a little while. We're not putting you on timeout. You're dead to us. You have shown to us that you do not want to be part of our family. You're all in. You're all out. And throw this out as well. That was a public comment. If you're familiar with Fernando's career, I love the guy, by the way. He's been, I mean... I've been the biggest Alonzo just as a fan. Forget me doing this for a living. Just, man, I love that guy. One of the most talented drivers I've ever seen. Huge fan. Also a bit dickish. How many teams has he left where that team was just crying? Tear, oh, no, come back. Doesn't have a reputation for leaving places just with the warm and fuzzies. Uh, the guy is just known for being very selfish more selfish, believe it or not, than most Formula One drivers, and very caustic. Well, okay, those are two traits that with a company like Honda, yeah, man, that's not going to get you super, super far. So while the GP2 engine comment was public, just say if we look at his history, do we really think that's the only time he ever said something negative? I have to believe some of those engineering meetings, some of those conversations with Honda's upper brass, there's probably some crossing of boundaries, serious crossing of boundaries here. So just saying, the GP2 comment, we know how that landed with Honda. I think it would be silly to believe it was a one-time thing. It was all just frickin' sunshine and ice cream uh, everywhere else while that motor was having lots of issues in its formative years. My guess would be the you are dead to us 
reception from Honda since then is a lot deeper than a single GP2 comment. Throw a couple other things out here as well. So we talk about this air quote apology, maybe, as Stuart mentioned. This jumps out to me as well. Fernando has, what, a zillion followers on Instagram and Twitter and wherever else. This is a person with a, you know, Hollywood level of social media followers, of reach, right? He can communicate to the world at any point in time and say whatever and reach a whole ton of people. If he truly felt bad about whatever he said, if he grasped that he went too far, if he understood that what he said, how he said it to the people he said it to, has created this division and wanted to try and heal it, even if I'm not sure it's possible. But if he wanted to, man, he sure does have an immense platform to do it, right? Publicly. And it doesn't even have to be super, super bad on himself. Thinking back on my years with Honda at the McLaren team in Formula One, I know that my frustration in wanting us to be faster and better and more successful at times led me to speak in a manner that was unflattering or unbecoming of a partner in that team. And for that, I want to apologize to Honda, its employees, the engineers, the folks who make the motors, and every other aspect of that, looking back, I'm not proud of how I reacted to very tough times. Knowing that, I'm by no means the first race car driver who was working with a manufacturer of engines or tires or another component that was going through hardships. Period. Doesn't have to be that many words. Something along the lines of, just want you to know, ah, that was maybe a little too much and I apologize. And I want the world to know it. Guy's had that green light the entire time, hasn't he? <laughs> if he really truly cared, if he truly grasped the cultural boundaries, the habitual line stepping he has done of cultural boundaries, Man, that dude's had a green light to frickin' post away on all kinds of platforms to millions of people around the world. I haven't seen it. Stuart, I've, I've read the, the quotes you mentioned here. Yeah, that, that read more like a, yeah, I'm sorry that uh, the stuff that I said was heard, not I'm sorry about the things that I said. And he doesn't have to be sorry, mind you. I'm not saying the guy has to admit anything. I'm just saying that if Fernando wanted to help himself and be with Andretti Autosport or Chip Ganassi Racing or another team using Honda engines in IndyCar, man, he sure has the power to affect his own future. He's got a phone sitting in right, right in front of him, I'm sure. Could do it at any time. Hasn't. 
So I'm not feeling too bad for the guy. We'll also throw out and say, so Fernando, if this is something that you really wanted to help make happen, you could get on a flight. You could fly to Japan. Again, the guy is one of the wealthiest race car drivers in the modern era. Could fly to Japan, speak to whomever, say, hey, uh, I know that uh, I've done things that have made me dead to you. I'd like to formally apologize. To my knowledge, that's never happened. I know for a fact that a member of the Andretti family was prepared to get on a flight and apologize for him to do this exact thing. There's apparently one senior, senior, senior most person at the mothership who has held the line and said, nope, guy's dead to us. Shut this whole thing down here recently. A very influential member of the Andretti family. I've been told more than once offered to get on the same exact flight I'm mentioning to Japan to do this exact thing. Please forgive. Please allow this to happen. That's amazing. The willingness to do that's amazing, right? Holy cow. Why would someone with the last name Andretti have to do that? They didn't create this situation. This is one of the reasons why I'm like, yeah, I'm not feeling this whole Honda bad Fernando being kept out, held out of the 500. Look, the guy has a reputation for being one of the world's finest race car drivers and a genuine selfish dick. It just, it's not new. <laughs> it didn't just happen when he spoke the GP2 comment. It's been that way for a while. It's, I mean, that's just part of it. Okay, again, I don't dislike the guy at all. That, look, I'm not always exactly a peach to deal with. Uh, regardless, this guy created the situation, committed a pretty serious cardinal sin culturally, done nothing that I've seen to try and repair it, and is now reaping what he has sown. I, like, I, how, do I, how do you feel bad? Honda should forgive him for what? Uh, struggling, as many manufacturers do? Uh, again, the guy could have done many things to make his life easier in regards to this. If he wanted to use a Honda engine, I've heard nothing to suggest that he has. Flip side, start to cover off and finish up this Alonzo thing. So let's say he never uses a Honda engine ever at the Indy 500. Let's say, sake of argument, he's going to be in this year's race with a Chevy-powered team. Man, poor guy, right? I don't know. They only won the race last year and the year before. Uh, they only won the championship last year uh, and then only won it, what, not the year before, but before that. I mean, yeah, poor Fernando. <laughs> Boy, if he couldn't use a Honda engine, pray tell, what would happen to him? I don't know. He might actually, based on history, be better off. And there's no disrespect to Honda, but 
I, we know who went into victory lane last year. We know who won the championship. Uh, we know how strong Chevy has been at the Indy 500 recently. Uh, again, kind of hard to argue that if good old Fred had to go with the bow tie, that that wouldn't actually be a pretty good thing. Final note here. It's been the question of, well, so then where would he go in Chevy land? Would it be Aero McLaren SP? They're Chevy powered now. Well, they do have a third car. They aren't exactly sure what they're going to use for a driver. I know that Fernando is certainly someone who would be an easy fit just because of the relationship with Zach Brown. I don't know if I would pencil him in there. So I think coming back to one of the core questions of, so what does this mean for Andretti? What does this mean for Fernando? I think it means that Andretti has a lot of people to choose from for the entry Fernando is meant to fill. I also think that for Fernando, unless something really, truly spectacular happens here very shortly with a Chevy-powered team, I don't know if we see him in the Indy 500. Uh, If it's not with Aero McLaren SP, I can't think of another team he would want to go to that he would think was capable of giving him a competitive car. So... Could fans lose out on seeing Fernando this year? Absolutely. Is Honda to blame? You know where I stand on that. Uh, The guy's made his bed, and I don't know. uh, He sure could be trying harder to fix things if you wanted to have better odds of getting in the race, being able to use one of the two engines uh, available from the two suppliers. Uh This guy controls his own fate. That's one of the cool things about Fernando Alonso. He has enough success, two world championships, uh, a cachet of just recognition and power. He's won the 24 Hours of Le Mans. He's won the 24 Hours of Daytona. He's just right. The guy has more money than he could truly ever spend in a lifetime. He's raced everywhere, won seemingly everything except for the Indy 500. This guy can pick and choose whatever he wants to do in life. There is no one forcing him to do a single thing. If he doesn't get to race the Indy 500, I know that there are fans who will feel cheated. I will not feel one ounce of sorrow for the guy because he lives a life that the average human being would truly kill to have. So, unfortunate sure like heartbreaking man i wish i had fernando alonso's problems (laughs) i bet you do too uh if if these are the biggest problems you have in life man that dude has life by the balls gonna grab one more alonso related question here because the angle to it is an interesting one that deserves a, a quick little hit This comes from Steven0608 on Reddit, who asks, Do you think it's a bad look for IndyCar with Honda not letting Alonso drive? He's one of the best drivers in the world. Because he he voiced his opinion years ago, he is still being punished for it. Roger Penske needs to talk to the leadership and help them see the business side of it. 
This one I always find fascinating, Stephen, because if we look at the NBA and a team makes a bad trade or fails to get rid of a bad player or does something where you go, oh, man, or why didn't you go after this player? They would have, you need them so bad and they were available and you didn't get them. The team takes the heat. I, I never hear, do you think it's a bad look for the NBA that this team didn't go get that guy or make sure that guy got something? Weird though that IndyCar gets mentioned by some as kind of being in the ball of blame here. Keep in mind, just overstating the obvious, not everybody knows this, I'm sure, especially some newer fans to the series. Unlike the major stick and ball sports, IndyCar does not own the teams. Those are not franchises that they have the rights to sell and govern. They are independently owned. So that's the case with teams, with manufacturers. It's an even bigger one, right? Love IndyCar. It's amazing. It's also a... By comparison, small regional entity that interacts with major global entities like Honda and Chevy. How exactly would IndyCar dictate to a giant business like Honda how it should act, what it should do, who it should do it with? They can, of course, voice those opinions and beliefs, but if we're talking about size and influence, you know, it's an ant yelling at an elephant. Uh, I don't see how IndyCar really gets roped into this. Would mention on the Penske front, I've heard, not saying it's accurate, but I've heard that this has gone across Roger's desk. This is where we do get to a little bit of this logjam, right? Knowing that Fernando's done nothing to help himself on the Honda front, that he is truly only staring at Chevy options. There's that Aero McLaren SP. And then there are some others. No disrespect to those other teams. But Fernando's been very forthcoming in saying, I'm not going to just turn up in anything at the Indy 500. If I don't feel like it's going to be a competitive situation, I'd rather not do it. Uh, Could he make the field in some other cars? Absolutely. Is he going to be fighting for the win? Absolutely not. So, what's a Roger Penske to do? Uh, Tim Sindrick runs his racing team. Roger can certainly tell Tim a lot of things that he wants to see happen, but dictating to Tim, you must run a fifth car at the Speedway. Tim's the one who has been very, very open about, this is the right number for us. Three full-time cars, a fourth for the Indy GP and the Indy 500, that's as far as I'm willing to stretch us because I believe we start to lose our competitive edge if we go to five or if we go to four full-time. So I don't see how Roger picks up the phone and orders Tim to do that. Uh, you might say, well, isn't his, that his team? Of course it is. Roger also grasps chain of command and respecting those Tim's the one who has said we need to go down from four full time to three would just say that since making that decision, boy, they've been hard to beat. Um, it'd be really tough to see a way that 
Roger makes space for Fernando just because folks think he should be in the show. After that, Ed Carpenter's been straightforward saying, look, I want to run Kyle Busch, but it'd have to be next year. I already have our three-car team in place, and we're not willing to stretch it. So unless someone does something really unexpected, it's kind of sort of Errol McLaren SP or nothing as I see it. And I've heard that that might not necessarily be coming together. All right, we're going to move on. And we're going to go to Richard Hinshaw, who says, it's very intriguing to see the Super Bowl ads as a clear marker of things to come in the auto industry. Says I thought Porsche, Audi, GM, and Ford all did a great job of showing how our electric future can still be appealing. He asks, do you see these kinds of ads as a continuation of the big shift coming in the industry? He also asks, how does IndyCar put itself in a more relevant position with auto manufacturers and their future electrified development? Awesome questions. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, did notice that. Did seem like this is the uh, the buttering up <laughs> stage of the relationship between the auto industry taking American buyers in a more electrified direction. Uh, this is the saying to mom and dad when you were a kid, boy, you sure look nice today or whatever it is before you ask them for uh, a raise in your allowance or whatever else. That's how I received many of the ads, Richard, that it's a case of the auto industry collectively understanding, you know, we're a meat and potatoes people. We like our combustion engines. We like burning dinosaurs and sniffing them out of the exhaust pipe. It's going to take a really intentional marketing plan to coax people towards a reduced internal combustion engine future. So as I saw some of the ads during the Super Bowl, it just struck me along those lines. Okay, they're starting the buttering up, getting us ready process. The bigger question you ask here about how does IndyCar put itself on a more relevant position with those auto manufacturers and their future development? Well, the does is easy. The will, that's the hard part. IndyCar, culturally, that's one of its weak points right now. IndyCar is still thinking that a small token hybrid system that is spec is going to be enough to make it relevant to the auto industry. It won't. It's not going to. Know that it might tick the box for a couple of manufacturers, but there's a big difference between doing a token thing. Oh, yeah, we're a hybrid now. Sure, you got 40 to 50 horsepower. People can't touch it. It's not something connected to the auto industry. It's made by a specialist manufacturer on behalf of IndyCar to go into their chassis. This has nothing to do with the auto industry saying, hey, look what we got. Can we come and use this? No. That mindset isn't there. Uh, the I'm trying to think, is there anybody in the series now who was working in a official series, official leadership capacity back in the day when 
IndyCar was a place where manufacturers could try some interesting things. Not talking really like crazy future science, but just, hey, we got some different ideas. Okay, we can try it here. All right, cool. Those people don't work in IndyCar right now. And that's my concern here, Richard. A little token hybrid thing. Okay, again, you tick the box, you can say you're hybrid. That's not inviting the auto industry to look at or treat your series like a place where they have any reason to show up and develop and play and prove what they do, how they do it, either make something better or demonstrate they have the best compared to their rivals. That, that culture does not exist at all. The longer it does not exist, the more fearful I am, the series becomes less and less relevant to the auto industry. So how does IndyCar put itself in that position? It says, you know, we're going to start in 2022 with this little token hybrid thing. Okay, we're, that's where we're going. How do we, by 24, 23, 20, 24, how do we start to open that up? What things would you, auto industry, possibly want to do? We're going to build in year-by-year kickers of things that we allow that give a real R&D capability for the auto industry to embrace. It's all you can do. Right now, there's nothing on the table for them to embrace. Buy this spec thing off the shelf that has nothing to do with your road cars. Put your motor in the back of the car next to it. Let's go racing. Well, again, we're going to solve the lack of hybridization in IndyCar. Here in a year or two, we are doing absolutely nothing at the moment to actually make the auto industry look at IndyCar as it once did, as a place to play and spend money and express itself while developing its future drivetrains and whatnot. I hope we get there, man. I just don't know if we will. Let's go to Will McCarty, who says, all right, so the Formula 3 Americas series now has forced its way onto the road to Indy. says, does Anderson Promotions have an opinion on this? Uh, Also, how do uh, chassis and F3 work? He says, I guess Delara basically has a monopoly, but uh, it isn't a pure spec formula. Same with engines. Is it generally one make per F3 championship? Um, well, so, okay. Chassis-wise, here in America, we have Liget's. It's built by Crawford, the uh, great Crawford folks. It is not Delara. Uh, the engines are Turbo Civic. This is made by, or developed by Honda Performance Development, make just a touch over 300 horsepower, which is great. Um, Would just maybe clarify a little bit, Will. Uh, The SCCA Pro Racing's Formula 3 Americas series has not been forced into, onto, or anything with the road to Indy. Honda has decided to give the next, the 2020 American Formula 3 champ, a scholarship to go to Indy Lights on the road to Indy. So wholly independent organizations, Dan Anderson, Anderson Promotions, he and his daughter Michelle Kish, in a fine group there, 
run the road to Indy. That's theirs. SCA Pro Racing, as I struggle to say words out of my face, they have their uh, USF4 in the F3 Americas as their two-tier ladder. F4, really, it's baby step out of carts. It's, you know, it's a baby step. And that's not a bad thing. Just, if you got talent in karting, you are probably going to want to turn up in USF 2000 on the road to Indy. I, I, there's no need, as I see it, if you have the ability, talent-wise and financially, to make that leap to get on to the road to Indy, USF 2000. Uh, F4 is there. It's a baby step. Um, it, we've seen some very good drivers use it. Kyle Kirkwood, our reigning Indy Pro 2000 champion, moving up to Indy Lights. He did some really good work there. Dakota Dickerson has done some good work there. There's a handful of kids who've done good stuff on the F4, F3 level. There's nothing there that the Road to Indy doesn't provide, though. And that's not me defending it because Cooper Tires, our partner, is celebrating their 10th year as a tire provider for the Road to Indy. It's just reality. Um, I'm never sad when there are an abundance of junior open wheel training series. But I would say, will the recognition by HPD that, hey, once the kid's done with F3 and we have a champion, where do they go? They go to the road to Indy because they sure aren't ready for IndyCar after winning an F3 title. So uh, Chris Pantani, who looks after Cooper's uh, racing goods, posted uh, some opinions on the good old social media saying, really, the winner of F3 America should be getting a scholarship to go to Indy Pro 2000. Don't disagree with that. I would say that historically... Seeing a kid go from back in the day, Super V champ or Atlantic champ. Atlantics were definitely way faster than the F3 cars. But nonetheless, someone going from Super V or Atlantics to Indy Lights, if not Indy cars, you know, pretty much no issue there. So I'm not so thrown by the fact that Honda is wanting to spend the money to promote uh, the upcoming F3 America's champ to go to Indy Lights. I'm super happy that there's someone paying to put another car in the grid, so that's awesome. Regardless, this acknowledges, Will, that the road to Indy, the Andersons have developed a ladder that is totally functional, meaning if you start with us, we'll take you to a place where when you're finished with us, skill and budget provided, you're going to be ready to be an IndyCar driver. So far, that's not the case with the two options going from F4 to F3. There's still a knowledge gap, an education and experience gap. And so I'm glad that Honda Performance Development has said, great, we're going to put money behind. And just as the road to Indy does with the Indy Pro 2000 champ to send that person to Indy Lights the following season, paid ride. Well, now we have a second kid winning a championship, getting a paid ride to go to Indy Lights. It's just not coming out of the road to Indy. So I'm good with this. And we're going to find out as well. 
if the 2020 Formula 3 Americas champ, whomever that happens to be, if he or she is truly ready to cut it in Indy Lights. This is going to tell us something, too, about the kind of talent, the kind of education they're receiving in that series. So 2021 is going to be an interesting little conversation point on this subject. Uh, Where do we go? I've got a couple questions here and similar ladder stuff, a lot of stuff that I've answered before, so I'm going to go past that. Uh, Thanks for those, Ed Joris and Dan Gallagher. Uh, What else? Mike Markham. Get to this. It's a little bit of old-timey-ish, but that's fine. Marshall, love the show. Thank you. I do, too. I know the whole Hinch situation has been covered pretty thoroughly. However, I didn't recall the ESPN body issue situation coming up when he was on your show recently. Do you know to what extent Hinch participated in that ESPN the issue uh, deal, or the body issue had on Arrow's PM eventually severing ties with him? He says, I understand that Arrow was furious about it, and at least one person inside the team, not counting Hinch, lost their job as a direct result. Yeah, two people lost their job. Uh, one was in the communications side, person that Robin Miller and I have long regarded as someone we couldn't fully fathom how they had that job, but regardless. Um, and the team president, I think was his title, John Flack. Uh, so two people lost their jobs there. Uh, just, I wanted to cover this one because while it might not be a new topic, I know that there has been some lingering misundereducating, underlearning aspects to this. So if you saw Hinch in his birthday suit and a helmet covering his uh, boy bits in that ESPN, the body shoot, you would have noticed that there was a Honda-powered IndyCar behind him in some of those photos. Not all of them, but there was an IndyCar there. Well, that photo shoot, I don't remember when it took place. I'm talking where on the exact calendar did it happen. But when did this whole thing kind of go down? Uh, end of August? Very beginning of September? Or something in that range. So just from a production standpoint, knowing how long it takes to make a magazine, since I have two clients to make magazines takes a little while uh just spitballing here this would have been done july late july mid late july early august something like that so we think about the announcement of aero mclaren sp coming together that took place what earlyish august So my assumption is this took place the photo shoot beforehand. Regardless of that, James Hinchcliffe was in the full and happy employ of Aero SPM at the time. Sponsored by Aero, obviously, but no one was talking when this photo shoot around this time would have taken place. There was no one questioning whether James Hinchcliffe was in good standing with the team would be back for another year to complete the third of his three-year contracts in 2020. No issue. Again, wasn't even conversation. We know that when this came out, uh, 
yeah, there was a lot of grumpiness. So here's the thing that we need to straighten out, and it's kind of sort of for Hinch's sake. Hinch didn't drive over to Arrow SPM, grab the little roll-up door clicker and go beep, beep, and the roll-up door went up uh, at 4 a.m., and he backed in his truck with an open bed trailer while no one was there. He didn't grab the winch, pull out the cable, hook it to the roll hoop, and wind that sucker up, strap the car down, take it to the speedway, unload it, then take his clothes off, I think probably oil himself down or whatever he did, um, and then put his bare ass on the thing or whatever he did, have them take photos, put clothes back on. We assume he did. Who knows? He, knowing Hinch, he might have actually ridden around town for the rest of the day naked. Uh, hope that nobody noticed a car was missing all day. Waited till everyone went home, went back, beep, beep, roll up door opened again. Did the reverse scenario, put the car back in place, close the door, and then weeks later, a month later, whatever, the body issue comes out, and the world is just taken by complete surprise. Obviously, Arrow SPM said, yes, we will provide a car for this. So while it was Hinch's naked butt, um, it's just worth sharing here, Mike. The way things go with situations like this, teams get requests all the time. Hey, could we do this? Could we do that? With your driver, with a car. They get things the drivers take to them. Hey, I've had this invite to do this thing. The team, though, is really the central point. Hinch, I don't know whether he's a direct employee or a contractor. Most drivers are contractors. Has a contract, you could kind of either say an employee or air quote employee of Aero SPM. So for him, uh, I'm fairly confident he would have said to the team if the inquiry came to him first, hey, ESPN asked me to go buck naked and do some photos. Can I? Can we use a car? And if it wasn't that direction, then it was ESPN reaching out to the team saying, hey, can we? And they asked Hinch, and he said, sure, I like being naked. Uh, Central point, though, all absurdity aside, this would have all been done through the team. Uh, Hinch doesn't own a car, doesn't have the ability to take a car. This was all having to be facilitated through the team. The contract between Arrow and SP is just that. It's a business relationship. Communication taking place between both sides. As I mentioned, when this went down, while the PR person who was let go was, there weren't any tears shed over that, uh, that to me seemed a little precious. Uh, If the PR rep is responsible for telling a major company like Arrow, oh, by the way, Our driver is going to be naked on your car. Maybe that's the structure that's set up there. I don't know. But I've never heard of anything like that. Um, If Will Power wanted to pose naked on his Verizon IndyCar, 
I struggle to believe that the fine young woman who looks after the IndyCar team's PR would be the one actually picking up the phone (laughs) to Verizon and saying, hey, just want to let you know. Or young man picking up the phone saying, so just will going to be booty cheeks on your Verizon side pod. Just let no, that is business to business level. That that's top leadership level. So I think that's why we had someone cut from their senior leadership here. Um, so all this kind of lines up Mike with the decision made by what we now call arrow McLaren SP. And on this show in particular, in a soprano voice, we refer to as spam. This decision with Hinch, uh, while he might have been the the lightning rod of it, uh, someone where anger was focused, this, to my knowledge, wasn't something that was his, quote, doing. Um, there are some failures in communication between team and sponsor. And so getting rid of Hinch because of this I've never heard that as an actual thing. What I have heard is with this new partnership in place, there was just a lack of belief he could be their champion, that he could get the job done and deliver front-running performances, wins and wins and wins, podiums and podiums, and take the team into title contention for the first time since 2014. I think it's as simple as that, but it is worth kind of mentioning that uh, let's not hammer Hinch too much for this because uh, that wasn't on him. Ryan Ward, Marshall, it seems like we're getting ready to have another great Rookie of the Year competition. Oliver Askew, Alex Palou, Renus VK. If your life depends on getting this right, who is Rookie of the Year in 2020? I would say I'd be super surprised if it is not Oliver Askew. And that's just because I think the Aero McLaren SP team is going to be readier to roll right out. But I could be wrong. Uh, I think the shocker, as I've been telling you, you guys for a while, it's going to be VK. The only reason I'm not putting VK kind of right there dead level with Oliver ECR's engineering consistency has been the thing we're waiting to see. Uh, We know that they can produce fast cars on road, street, and oval circuits. It's been a little while since we've seen them show up everywhere and be in the hunt. I think the McLaren team is going to be more consistent Do I think we might see some more, holy crap, did you see what just happened, type performances from VK? I think we might. This kid's looking like a real slugger. Uh, But, again, until we see from ECR that they can hit that metronomic consistency on the engineering front, it might be more swings. You know, the guy's either knocking him out of the park or striking out. I think with Askew, yeah, uh, I think we're going to see a better average that might lead to that Rookie of the Year 
title going his way. Palu, great question. We don't know what we're going to get. The kids demonstrated really strong adaptability. Hasn't done a lot of consistent things in the sport, meaning he was in this series for two or three years up against some really stout competition, and this is how he developed, and this is how far he got. Very few full seasons in any one championship for Alex. So in the bouncing around he's done, of which there's been a ton, he's been pretty impressive. That bouncing around, though, quite often has limited him from being up front. Because when you're always learning something and everything's always new, it's when you come back the second year, the third year, where folks get a proper representation of all your skills. I don't know what we're going to see from him, but I think he is going to be better than expected. He's also going to be the biggest question mark. Nobody's going to know, going to know who he is. And that's probably going to play to his favor. Uh, Aaron Richmond says, Marshall Carlin racing has been pretty quiet on their 2020 plans. Any update as to what they're doing? No, <laughs> no. And I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's worrying. Uh, we're now just past five o'clock on Thursday, Friday, tomorrow. We know we have the Hinch and Arrow SPM, uh, Arrow McLaren SP media bits. Will there be a Carlin thing? I don't know. Uh, it, it should have been here already. Um, will it happen Monday media day <laughs> where all the drivers are appearing at Austin? I don't know. I'm a little, this is concerning me. Despite the team telling me, nope, everything's good. We'll be there with two cars for spring training, full season. Wow. Uh, just signals greater concern than anyone wants. We hope there's no issue, but man, when you're going to spring training on February 11th, where all the world's going to see all the full season cars and drivers. And it is February 6th. It is 1 a.m. in the UK right now. So everybody at Carlin is asleep. Man, I'm just hoping we see some news here tomorrow or Monday. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. All right. Time to take another nice swig of this fine Samuel Smith's nut brown ale and it does feel a little bit weird to drink something with nut brown on it i'm gonna go to anthony beck says mp i've felt like a fool since the spam announcement but it's time to stop suffering in silence perhaps others are living in the same confusion as i am and you can drop some knowledge bombs on us so when i heard the announcement that mclaren was coming to indycar i thought hell yeah we've got a third engine manufacturer so, obviously, I was wrong about that. But <laughs> I'm off about it uh, all being one company. He says the McLaren Group, which consists of McLaren Racing teams, as well as McLaren, the auto manufacturer. Do I have that right? He says, assuming it's one entity, though, why no discussion of a McLaren engine being a possible third manufacturer somewhere down the road? I'm clearly missing a piece of this puzzle. I don't know what it is. No worries at all, Anthony. So I axed, A-X-E-D, I axed 
Zach Brown about this shortly after he took over as CEO of McLaren Racing and said, so you're from like, you know, well, he's from L.A., but you're from Indiana. You spent a lot of years of your life there, business, all kinds of stuff, IndyCar racing, open wheel. That's who you are. Uh, now McLaren um, engines. Yeah. IndyCar. Yeah. And he reminded me what I already knew. But again, I was hoping he said two totally different businesses. Uh, separate directors, separate income streams. It all, I'm sure, goes to the same place financially, eventually, but said this is not something for me to control. If the McLaren road car company decides that doing an engine program in IndyCar is of value, then we'll do everything we can to be a part of that and help. But don't mistake what we want to do with racing with what McLaren on the auto side wants to do with racing as well. And everything we've seen, Anthony, so far with the auto side is building not only their road cars, but GT racing vehicles that they sell. And I hope they make a profit on, but they have a pretty good business doing that. It seems like that's working for them. Um, other things Zach has said, which is something that really does apply here, albeit in a different series, in IMSA, Zach's a, a longtime lover of sports car racing as well, been asked, hey, this IMSA thing, this DPI next generation car prototype thing, is that something where McLaren might build a future DPI or something here for America? That's, you know, that sounds like it might work. And he said, well, again, from a racing standpoint, we're feeling like we really only need to be in one space in the United States. So it would be very unlikely that McLaren Racing would be an IndyCar and do a separate thing in sports cars here. So I really do think, Anthony, that kind of covers the subject. Could McLaren decide to build IndyCar engines to help promote its road cars for 2022 and beyond they could at least taking the temperature on the mclaren group as i kind of stumble on words from zach he makes it sound like the mclaren name being there the papaya orange and blue and you know whatever the the kind of traditional things that folks might identify with mclaren folks seeing that in indycar that's enough and we will market and promote around that. So not silly for you to not understand because I do this for a living, man, and I don't understand half of what I'm supposed to know. Uh, Paul Trahan, thank you. Says, MP, now that you've caught up on the Mandalorian, which IndyCar driver would be the Mandalorian and who would be Baby Yoda? Ah, this might be the easiest one I've gotten in a while. The Mandalorian would absolutely be Alexander Rossi. I don't know why I was just about to say Alexander Ferrari, but that's what went through my head. Uh, the Mandalorian would be Alexander Rossi, right? Uh, Mandalorian doesn't say a lot of words in public. Um, can be a little bit stoic, but we also saw guys actually got a pretty, you know, complex character. Just wasn't always on display. So, and Alexander, as we've seen in the past, use a little bit of a mask 
definitely that mask has been coming off more and more. I know he just posted something on the good old social medias about that. Um, I would, I mean, it's Rossi, right? Is there anyone else that would be the Mandalorian? Baby Yoda. So the cute, right? That's the thing that really makes Baby Yoda what is Baby Yoda, right? Um, you know, other than being green, but every time my wife and I would see Baby Yoda, is me in particular. I was about to lie there and say it was my wife equally knows me. It no joke out loud every time. Oh, I'm a bit of a dork that way. Who qualifies as that cuddly and cute and young? Even though I think the Yoda, baby Yoda, what do they say, is 50 years old, but still, it's a baby. Who fits that? I mean, this is where I'm struggling here. Um, it's not for Rucci, you know, with that little freaking Brillo pad uh, beard thing he had. I mean, you know, a little more gremlin-esque than Yoda. Uh, I mean, Kanan, maybe, but again, he's not a baby. He's the opposite. Who who would be cute and cuddly if they were an alien among IndyCar drivers? That's where I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm coming up. I know I'm coming up short. I don't know if I'm coming up tall here. It's not New Garden, right? Okay. Um, it's not Herda. Uh, Sato, maybe? He's what, 42? So again, he's not young. Where I mean, this is a tough one. Why are you doing this to me, Paul? Really? What are you doing? All right. I mean, it. I guess it'd have to be Zach Veach, wouldn't it? You know, he's size-wise pretty damn close to Baby Yoda. Uh, I believe he is 10 inches tall, so that's almost spot on to Zach. He is, you know, a little cute little fella. You can just, he has the most, pinchiest pinchable cheeks like grandmothers would just pinch his cheeks all day that's a kind of baby yoda ish if we have a truly committed week in indycar listener telling you i will be awaiting the jpeg or the gif or the something of zach veach's head on Baby Yoda's and green as well. I mean, that that's kind of got to be a Friday thing, right? So come on, somebody, please, please make that happen. Let's go to Kevin Kerner from the good old book faces. MP, thanks for your work, putting up so much IndyCar content for me to listen to. It makes my work days a little easier to suffer through. Oh, man, I hate hearing that you suffer through work. It says you and your lovely bride continue to be in my prayers. Jeez, thank you, man. Seriously, thank you, Kevin. I don't, when folks say that they pray for my wife and I, uh, we don't actually just take those in passing or dismissively. When folks say, you know, prayers to you two, that's just a thing. Um, this, when you say that you continue to pray for us, that lands. That truly lands. Kevin says, I was wondering if you could share the story of how AutoNation became such a great partner. For IndyCar, it seems like only a few years ago they were involved, and now they're a major sponsor of two entries, Alexander Rossi and Jack Harvey. Longtime associate sponsor on another car, Ryan Hunter Ray, and now they are title sponsor of my home race at Coda. Wow, what a partner to have. 
I hope many other companies follow this example in the future. I don't know the true origin story here, Kev, which, you know, was it RHR that made that happen first? The one that I know that leads back to the 2017 alliance between Shank and Andretti involving Jack Harvey was Jack befriending and becoming just super good bros with, I believe, the CEO of AutoNation. And that just taking off in a really positive relationship, manifesting from there. So I would love to tell you more, and maybe I'll learn more, and maybe I will tell you more. But that's about the only thing that jumps out to right now. Let's go to Chris Hoffman. Hey, Chris. says, MP, after hearing you discuss what would happen if a team member left for another team with setups, and whatnot from their previous employer, has something like that happened recently to your knowledge? Let's just bypass the to-my-knowledge standpoint, Chris. I don't know of anyone that has done that recently, but that just means I don't know. But I assume it absolutely happened, because it always happens, despite teams going to extensive levels to make sure it doesn't happen. It still happens. Uh, I've heard about folks leaving a major team, major IndyCar team, going to another team. And not necessarily like well-known race engineer guy, but assistant engineer. And they were able to bring some high-quality setup sheets with them and data with them. Uh, All of a sudden, the team that they went to, which was struggling... Uh, having brought high quality and successful, maybe even championship winning information with them, all of a sudden that team they went to really had a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, trying to think what else. I know that, now granted, this is almost 20 years ago, but back in the day when I would leave a team and I was in some form of engineering position, uh, rules were not n- nothing like they are today. And, you know, this is by and large, a pre-digital era. This is almost mostly on paper, granted. Lots of spreadsheets, but just, you know, we weren't working in the cloud. There weren't big server farms and quadruple encryption and this. I mean, it wasn't like that over here. Uh, You know, I still have setup sheets and data and all kinds of stuff from the 90s and early 2000s. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm a jerk. Um, it always happens, my man. Uh, and as I mentioned in that little explanation, even if you do not take a single thing, even if everything that is on that server, in the cloud, on your laptop, even if all those things are not touched, man, if you know you're going to leave and you have yet to tell your team and you are simply doing your job, and you are at your desk, in the transporter, on the timing stand, whatever, it might be a challenge to leave with digital content, but with a pen and a piece of paper, it sure isn't hard to write down at this track. This is the damper configuration we use that was successful. This is the spring rate. This is the geometry. This is camber caster. Tire pressures, yada, yada, yada. Again, a lot of things change from year to year, but still. uh, Anyone with a writing utensil and a piece of paper can easily write some of these things down in the just normal, 
performing of their job duties, and no one would know the difference. And if they intend to leave at the end of the year and know that they want to make sure that they might not have the digital stuff but still have the information captured and they don't have a photographic memory, well, Chris, again, there's a lot of things you can write down. Stuff in your pocket, stuff in your wallet, put in your lunchbox, uh, you know. Anyways, there's still a, a high degree of trust. And I can tell you that I know of how's this. There's one example of a person who I know. It was actually the person who worked at one super high level championship winning team, went to their direct rival that was sucking a bit. Um, I'm trying to think at that time. I think this was, yeah, prior to the new engine formula. So everybody would have been on the same chassis, same engine, same everything. And it resulted in an immediate uptick in performance for that other team. And that got around. And I can tell you that person might have lasted a little while at the team that he went to. But uh, I've watched him year by year go from lower team to lower team to lower team and was fired at the end of the 2019 season by, uh, let's just say he'd reached pretty much rock bottom. So even if you might not get the goods, even if you do get the goods, uh, it's pretty hard to do that stuff without people knowing, man. Uh, Keith Lee says, MP, can we start a new segment called Whatever Happened To? For example, whatever happened to Neil Micklewright, the president of operations at Forsyth Racing? It's a great question, Lee. Haven't seen Neil in a really long time. I will have to ask a couple of friends, so maybe I will remember to respond. Whatever happened to? Yeah. Uh, boy. <laughs> I. It's a great idea. I just know I would fail at delivering on that right now on a weekly basis. Bullfrog at the phase two from Twitter. So I need to thank you here. Says, hey, Marshall, hoping everything is going well at home. Shout out to Neil Pert. Says trying to uh, still trying to put that one together. Says, anyway, haven't thrown an album suggestion your way in a while, and I have one I think you'll enjoy. It is from the band Moontooth. Well, I'd never heard of Moontooth, dear Bullfrog, until you done mentioned them. And then I done downloaded an album from them. Uh, I don't believe it was Crux. It was Crux. Man, I have been jamming out to that for a couple days. So thank you. Uh, I was kind of in the need for something new because I've been listening to almost nothing but Rush. Uh, A little bit of Queens of the Stone Age, uh, which my wife can never remember their name, which is hilarious. Um listening almost exclusively to Rush since Neil Peart died and focusing on their late 80s, early 90s albums, of which beforehand I could claim to have known one song, maybe. Basically, anything after, I don't know, Grace Under Pressure. Uh, I downloaded it, but, you know, maybe wasn't super listening to Snakes and Arrows or whatever else. And so just trying to familiarize myself with the full albums and just found myself listening to 
the same stuff over and over and over and over and over again, loving it, but in a little bit of a loop. So just want to say thanks for the suggestion and moon tooth, man, um, I'm, I'm really happy. So I got to download more of their stuff and really do appreciate that, man. All right. We're going to get to one here. That's two here that are technical ish. I hope you like the technical stuff. It's one of the few things I can say that I do that might be unique in the sport. I'm going to enjoy some of Sam Smith's uh, question-answering magical powder, though. Ray Schumann says, Marshall, this one's for you. I wanted to talk about hybridization. For IndyCar, I see the system as an MGUH, only driven by both turbos, connected to a small battery and motor in series with the internal combustion engine, that being a heat or exhaust-driven hybrid system compared to the using little motors uh, that spin up on the axle to charge to generate power that is electrified and sent back. Uh, He says the system would not have any regenerative braking component as it wouldn't be of much use on ovals. This would also remove some cost, complication, and weight. The hardware would be spec, but the control software and control strategy would be open the only thing required would be the ability for self-starting. No question it will work for on street courses. I like this idea for Indy and the other ovals because extra power could be used to increase straight line speed. Says with current levels of downforce, that would mean the cars would go fast, be flat in the full throttle through the corners, which would improve racing. Your thoughts? Well, I love it. Uh, I've also said the same exact thing, Ray, for quite a while. Uh, the fact that, and written about it too, in Racer Magazine, where the self-starting regenerative braking curs system, the back of the car, really driven through the rear axles, that's the norm. That's the standard thing. That's what IndyCar has said they're going to do all along. That's going to be the primary system. Other thing they acknowledged, and I, I, again, would go and pick up the last issue of Racer from 2019, which had all this content in it, was IndyCar's leadership saying, and we also realize that that does nothing for us on the ovals. So having something that charges the battery by braking on ovals where we don't really break much so that's a fail so we're going to need something that is a separate and secondary energy recovery system on the ovals and so this mguh you mentioned something likely driven by the turbo something that isn't braking regeneration based that is exactly what they discussed uh that's what we've written about. So yeah, uh, I'm with you, man. Um, if they're going to deliver on what they said they want to do, a hybrid system that works everywhere, they can't go with just the Kurs system. As for the open control, open software, open strategy type, how you actually govern the use and deployment and all that, that's the area that we know one manufacturer is pushing for for IndyCar to do. That's the area where they've said, okay, we're not loving this spec system you're talking about. It does nothing for us. But if we can at least demonstrate what makes us different from our rivals, 
on the software and control side. So maybe we can get more out of that overall hybrid package than our rival or make it do things better, faster, stronger, more powerful than ever more ever before. That's the, the caveat that makes it okay. So we'll see if that ends up getting pushed through, but yeah, Ray, this is the direction they said they need to go. And I have heard nothing to lead me to believe that they aren't going that direction. So let's go to Stephen Johns. MP, I've heard a lot lately about the ongoing damper apocalypse. <laughs> That's destroying IndyCar. Sarcasm. And calls for spec dampers. I understand that Indy Lights uses a, a spec multimatic DSSV damper. That's the same for all the races. Do you have any insight into how spec this damper is? Is it sealed or locked down? Are they running the same valving at Indy as they are on the pothole gauntlet that is my home track in Toronto? Where there's some tuning and testing that goes on with those cars. Best wishes to you and Mrs. Pruitt. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, yes, they are not truly sealed. Can't touch them. They are just one thing that work everywhere. Uh, teams are allowed to indeed personalize them, as has always been the case. Uh, well, I shouldn't say always because that has changed too in the era of spec stuff. But yeah, man, the. Uh, the first shocks that I tore apart and built, and by built, I mean trying something different, was at the Atlantic level, I believe, from Atlantic level. Indy Lights as well, uh, you know, trying something that we thought might work best in testing at whatever track and build them up, throw them on the good old damper dyno, off we go, see what the curves look like, what the nose looks like, what the this looks like. This is a while ago, but... Yeah, um, to my knowledge, uh, there's no truly you can't look inside of them at all or individualize things from circuit to circuit. So if I'm wrong, then, well, that wouldn't be a surprise. Let's go to a couple of folks, El Jones Arena and Sage's Missing Shirt. I love that screen name, by the way. Uh, let's see. I believe I asked a question to the same effect last year at some point. But with both NASCAR and Porsche investing over $200,000 each for their iRacing eSports series this year, and NBC beginning to air eNASCAR races on NBCSN, has IndyCar made any strides in trying to get themselves into the eSports world? And L. Jones Arena asks, any idea uh, to add on to your question? Says, uh, MP should provide live commentary on any future NBC IndyCar eSports broadcasts. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you for the laugh. Um, yeah, uh, that would be terrible commentary because I'd just be clowning people um, because I'm a bit of an ass, uh, if not all of an ass. Uh, but it is a good, good placement for my talent. I'll continue to ask the question. I've heard nothing to lead me to believe that some sort of big eSports strides have been made. I've heard some significant things are coming outside of a series that compete with IndyCar. I've heard nothing about IndyCar, though. So, again, could just be my ignorance, and I haven't asked the right people or haven't asked that question recently enough. So, not to my knowledge, but yet another thing for me to pose. Uh, let's go to Cody 
DW12. We often hear how a full season at big teams costs an ungodly amount of money. $10 million a season at last check. No, that's not the number. Uh, well, it could be the number, but no. It's six-ish to seven make teams super very happy. Uh, but six is what most teams are looking for. And smaller teams, a still large amount, $6 million at last check. Yeah, so just a quick aside here. There used to be a range. Like, ah, you could kind of get in at this minimum number, but we'd really like it to be up there, higher. What we've seen in the last couple of years is there's almost no, like, low number. There's a, of course we could do it for less, and it could be just the equivalent of staying at a Motel 6. But most teams that I know of are not willing to do that anymore. So uh, there's almost no, like, high-low. It's, this is about the number you just got to hit everywhere. You could go higher, but there's no low. There's just a high, and then you could go higher. It says, with that being for 17 races, one would think it split somewhat evenly. Yet we often hear about drivers needing over a million just for the Indy 500 in a one-off. I, again, uh, I don't know. I Yeah, that million, I don't know about that. Uh, no, but it's not a number I've heard. Never. Uh, in recent years, uh, usually four hundred to 750000 is about the range. I'm not saying someone couldn't ask for over a million, but, you know, I talked to a lot of drivers who were trying to get in for these one-offs, and... I've never heard one say that they've been told over a million. Um, so maybe recalibrate that a little bit. It says, is it so high because so much more time and effort goes into prep for the Indy 500? Is it that the teams need to get extra money in case of a failure to qualify? Is it that amount of capital needed for anyone off due to setting up an entire extra car and staff? Sorry, as I struggle to read your final questions here and avoid sneezing. Uh, what I've, and now my voice is going to crack and I'm going to go through puberty. What the hell is wrong with me? Uh, is that any better? A little bit. All right, here we go. So, Cody DW12, I would say the answer is. Finding sponsors, finding the budget to meet this new, it's all high. (laughs) All the budgets are high for everybody. Even the small teams, they got to find more money than they've ever had to. I think the majority of those that run extra cars for the 500 are looking at it as a way to offset that struggle just using generalisms here prior to this modern formula with the DW12 teams, of course, Hey, we're going to try and make a profit on the Indy 500. Naturally, you'd be stupid not to, but the numbers weren't crazy to play. And, you know, more often than not, it was, all right, we're just going to try and improve our odds, have more cars. And if we can make, you know, some extra money with it, great. But, That wasn't the big standout reason and purpose. As I've seen it of late, the Indy 500 is absolutely a factor in how a team pays. Many teams pay for its full season of racing. Of course, a team Penske and such, 
you know, it's great if you can have Pennzoil or whomever spending the money to put uh, their colors on a car. You know, it only helps. But Roger is not in trouble of failing to get to every race with their full-time cars if they don't have an Indy 500 program with an extra car and that extra budget. Too many teams need that car to be in the field to help bring in the income that maybe they haven't gotten from all the sponsors or they just haven't had enough money coming in, period. And the Indy 500 is seen as a place where, yep, (laughs) that's where we're going to carve a nice old piece off the top that is going into the bank. That's what it's become more than I can recall uh, in my lifetime. So that's a thing, man. I'll tell you that I have heard this week of one team that I believe has more than adequate funding and needs a quality driver in its third entry and is dicking around with trying to get money for it. Like, you know, real money. That's something I might not understand. Uh, If you don't truly need that extra cash, and you do need a talented veteran, but you're maybe not doing that deal because you want to see if you can get someone else to pay for it who's almost as good. Yeah, that struck me as a little bit funny. But overall, Cody, I would say, yeah, get get the numbers down a little bit. You know, teams are looking for six. If they can get to eight, man, they're going nuts. But six is about the minimum uh, that teams are looking for. Again, could it be five? Sure, but... That's really where everyone's setting their bar and not wanting to really waver. And there's a lot of teams now that look at that 500 seat and say, Ooh, we're, we're going to pocket a nice little wedge from doing this. I forgot my password. Okay. From Reddit says, Hey MP, did the post Malone Super Bowl ad make you want to try Bud Light hard seltzer? Also says after you ran out and bought it, how did it taste? <laughs> ah, so did see the ad. Um, I thought it was actually a little bit funny. I've heard probably nine seconds of Post Malone's music. As someone who grew up on hip hop back from the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Furious Nine. Uh, was that the one with Vin Diesel in it? Um, having grown up on hip hop since the very early eighties, I fear I have to tell you, dear listeners that I fall into that. Okay. Gen Xer thing where like post Malone. Okay. I, I, I don't know what to classify him as. I know that his music does land in the hip-hop, I'm sorry, rap genre. I haven't heard any of it that makes me think it's what I want to listen to, so I guess I suck in that regard. 
Um, and so therefore, if I see a guy whose music I think is just the shittiest of shit, uh, wanting to try <laughs> the shittiest beer ever now in hard seltzer form, uh, shocker, uh, spoiler alert. I did not actually run out and buy it or taste it. Um, so sorry. I don't want to sound like the cranky old guy. Yeah, you kids and your music today. I love music today. I just, that guy, I'm like, so that's someone people are listening to. Uh, anyways. Um, but Hey, I'm sure folks are saying that right now. You're listening to that morons podcast. Goes on to say, seeing all the celebs and semi-celebs at the game and in the commercials, it made me wonder, when I'm walking through the Barber Museum or browsing internet pictures, it's not unusual to see famous names on top-level cars. James Garner, Paul Newman, Bill Cosby, one or the other, Smothers Brothers. So who is the most recent Hollywood celebrity type to slap their name on a racing program or an indie only? Wow. Uh, boy. Was that Cedric the Entertainer? Well, and again, it might not have been, uh, it wouldn't have been Indy. That would have been Champ Car. Uh, Carmelo Anthony? Is he in there? Um, I'm trying to think timeline-wise of actual putting name. Oh, I think it might have been Kim Kardashian and whatever, like, methamphetamine-based weight loss thing from what? Like the, I don't know, 2000, 20, 2009, 2010, something like that, Indy 500 with Graham Rahal? Forgetting what it was. But, yeah, I think that might have been it. Yeah, I'm probably, I'm sure, forgetting someone else. But, and I think when we, when we asked Graham about that on a weekend IndyCar appearance, he mentioned, like, yeah, that was all, you know, some marketing company talking to another marketing company. It wasn't like Kim rang me up. It was like, I want to be on your car. Um, but, yeah, I wonder if it was Kim. That would be hilarious. Uh, da, da, da. Let's go to Tom Boyers as we, where are we? All right, we're getting to the, I'm going to tell you we're getting towards the finish line. Why? Well, because I decide where the finish line happens to be. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, we're going to go to, where else do we go here? Tom Boyers, with a recent Penske IndyCar takeover, got me thinking about the old IRL, given that you work for various teams in the early period of the series' life. So I wonder if you could give us some insight into what the atmosphere was like amongst the IRL paddock, teams, media, officials, staff, etc. at the time, given that you played to some pretty empty houses at the times, at the time, and the overall quality was diluted by the split. What was the feeling like among the engineers, mechanics, truckies, etc.? Did teams' personnel think it was all going to end at any minute? Were people hoping they'd be rescued by a cart team? Etc. Etc. Boy, very quick recollections, Tom. Uh, It it was uh, maybe the timing is perfect. So the Super Bowl just concluded, and this weekend the XFL starts. I would say that back then there was more than a few parallels between the NFL and the XFL between cart. In the IRL. The IRL was cheap, comparatively easy to get into, both driver-wise, team-wise, crew-wise. 
it was not a thing that led the finest in many instances, not all, but in many instances, this was not a case of, boy, there's a bunch of amazing people on the sidelines and there just aren't enough cars in cart. And now that the IRL is here, oh, there's just so much talent that was on the bench coming to play. Very much like the XFL. Uh, I saw something on ESPN today where Landry Jones quarterback i think is like the face of the xfl i remember reading his name a couple of times i i can't i don't remember much more about him and i would say that's a very irl type thing tony stewart was an exception right amazing talent so thankful that he had the success that he did and went on to nascar but it's a case where a lot of drivers who are a little bit past their prime, who had fallen out of favor in cart, were all of a sudden prized possessions in the IRL. No disrespect to Ari Leyendijk, but cart teams weren't exactly looking to put him in a car full-time anymore. IRL, ooh, man, big prestige in having an Indy 500 winner. At that time, a one-time Indy 500 winner. Scott Goodyear was, you know, at the end of his IndyCar career, basically. IRL came along. Hey, that guy, you know, not a big winning history, but certainly, you know, podium contender, uh, depending on the year. That's a guy who was, you know, very XFL-ish. Would tell you that the general feeling for some was awesome. I've always dreamt of working in IndyCar, and now I can. Uh, the bar to access is a lot lower. I'm not saying this in any kind of false humility-type way. I kind of fit that, Tom. Like, I'm being real. I could have gone to cart, worked for cart teams for a long time, I'm guessing. I did work in cart for a while. In the two, two, no, 99, uh, the Hogan team and fit right in, you know, whatever was good, but you know, uh, could I have spent all of my career in cart probably being one of the, again, unremarkable people on the crew kind of skirt by. Yeah, probably. I'm sure that I could, um, In the IRL, I enjoyed what I did because I was often able to do multiple things, and that's always appealed to me. So working for a smaller team where I got to play multiple roles, that fit my character, spirit, and work ethic. So I enjoyed that, but i got to admit, man, uh, until the IRL, I wasn't exactly sure when or how I was going to move up from Indy Lights into CART. So general feeling i think for a lot of folks was happy to be there but also probably a lot of people who knew that if a hundred of us were lined up and cart teams were said take the ones you think are the best uh, there'd probably still be a lot of people left standing there (laughs) at the end of that selection process so that's kind of what i remember man 
Uh, don't know about being rescued by the cart team or any of that kind of stuff. I think there was just a hope that it would continue and get better. And as we saw in time, that Indy 500 was the thing that as long as cart did not have that, uh, it, its fate was going to be sealed. And so one by one, teams came over from cart and we know what happened from there. So, uh, there was also, and I'm speaking for myself, but also, you know, some of those that I worked with, you know, there, there was a firm recognition that we were the lesser. We were not the beloved racing series. And, you know, that, that can be a little bit of a knock on self-esteem. All right. Well, I couldn't really get picked up for uh, the big leagues here. So, XFL IndyCar, here we are. Go to our pal Tim Falkowitz. Back when you worked on the team side, what did you use when deciding on which drivers to hire, sponsorship dollars, session data, race results, word of mouth, any other determining factors? Very, very, very subjective thing, Tim. You know, team to team. It is, there's no single formula that all teams use total sidebar here quickly. Uh, really interesting texts that I got from a team owner here very recently about someone in the IndyCar series on the driver front asking why haven't they packed up their belongings in IndyCar in Indianapolis. I'm sorry. And left. They just truly, (laughs) they can stay here and keep doing their job and get paid to do it and continue their career. But why do they bother? Because they're never going to achieve whatever thing they believe they're going to achieve. It was fascinating, Tim. Uh, I knew this person's opinion of that driver beforehand. The person who sent it, I don't know, might have had a few drinks, I don't know, but just, again, fascinating where you go, huh, uh, I know this person's view on the topic of who do you decide, who do you value, who do you rate, and how and why, but interesting to see the, just the take, right? Ah, no, that, that person's good or could be or whatever, to, yeah, they could still hang around and do their thing and probably have success, but... Why bother? Cut your losses now and go do something else in life. You get that kind of stuff from some teams when it comes to drivers. Keep in mind the first thing you mentioned of criteria was sponsorship dollars. If we look at the team that hates me the most, AJ Foyt Racing, what do they have this year? They have four drivers. Three of them are paying for the pleasure of driving. Charlie Kimball's paying, although I've heard he's not bringing a giant budget, but uh, Charlie's paying, as he has every year, to compete, not out of his trust fund or anything like that, but obviously great sponsor relationship. So again, wonderful for Charlie. He has a committed sponsor and or business relationships that cover that tab. We have Dalton Kellett who, to my understanding, is paying for the majority of the number 14 car. Uh, We have Sebastian Bourdais, who is not paying 
And we have Tony Kanon, who this might come, a, come as a surprise to some. Tony is paying. It's, again, not the air quote pay scenario, pay driver. He has committed sponsors that have been with him that want to be a part of his story and his last lap. They are helping to fund his time in the car. So if we look at the AJ Foyt team having lost ABC supply and what we understand was significant funding, you have a team all of a sudden that has no money. And so if we're talking, how do we decide who and what and where a team that has no sponsors is probably going to prize the funding over most other criteria. Of course, you're going to look for the best of both worlds who can bring the money we need and has the highest degree of experience, talent, aptitude, the best record and such. Uh, But you're not always going to get that. And that's one of the concerns about Dalton. He is a sweetheart of a kid. There are questions as to whether he belongs in an IndyCar. Maybe I'll get into that a little bit more here with a question I know that's in the pipeline as we uh, get towards the finish. But to a team that is all of a sudden out of funding, man, uh, hey, uh, session data (laughs) doesn't really matter. Session data is not going to pay that engine lease. Uh, or the tire lease, or the hotels, or the flights. Uh, Some others, that's the fun stuff. The teams that have funding and have to really do scouting, Tim, real, true, what you would consider baseball, football, basketball, scouting of talent, those are the conversations I love and engage in frequently because as a guy that used to do this, as a guy that drove a little bit, as a guy that did a lot of driver coaching and engineering, I have a lot of opinions. They're probably pretty flawed, but I have them. And I am determined to share them with people that I like uh, and who are in the sport too, who at least suffer through and listen. And these are the fun, fun debates. What do you think about this guy? What do you think about that guy? Story, I should say story thing that i heard from a person who was engaged in it uh scott mclaughlin who i should have mentioned in the beginning as part of this week's news going to be part of team penske's indy gp effort going to test at spring training to my surprise that decision was not made in isolation Uh, there was someone who was consulted outside of the team may or may not be affiliated with an entirely different team get their thoughts on this guy on this potential decision fascinating right wouldn't you think team penske i mean you know the the kings of indycar right now for the most successful team ever Wouldn't that be something that they could probably come to on their own? I love the fact that they wanted to include someone else in this batting the idea around. 
And as I wrote, Scott's not being drafted in here just for play play. Uh, If things go according to plan, I will not be surprised if there is a change in the full-time Team Penske roster when we come back here for spring training 2021. Questions, right? Hey, we've seen this guy. We know how fast he is. He's our driver in the uh, Australian Supercar Series. He's tested for us at Sebring and did very well. Think there's promise. What do you think, though? Should we potentially, you know, send some ripples through our team, make some drivers question their place, potentially wondering if is this guy going to take my seat next year? You know, again, who knows? I can't tell you what all was discussed, but. I love the idea of this, of talent spotting. Hmm. Uh, I'll tell you this, Tim. There's a certain look and demeanor within the drivers who are truly great. It's interesting for me in talking with team owners, team principals, engineers, whatever, just to hear how they recognize those unique traits. I was about to say treats. Those unique traits. When they see them, how they see them, if they see them. Um, For the teams that have budgets and can pick and choose, it is rather interesting where there's this hunter-killer thing, which I've, I've described it as for many years. There's this... Discovery Channel, Nat Geo Channel, out on the African Serengeti. You know, you've got that pack of lions. They're all going to go hunting. Let's look at the mannerisms, though. Which one is spotting the one in the herd that really needs to be pursued? Which ones are kind of on the periphery trotting instead of sprinting? Which ones are the first to the prey versus third? Uh, How territorial are some? How, again, just all these things where you go, huh, we're looking for hunter killers first and foremost. How do they behave? Are they going to freaking eat members of their own pack? Uh, more time spent talking about this stuff with friends in the sport than probably just about anything else. So it's super subjective. I'm glad you asked about it and hopefully I didn't bore you with that answer. Uh, Noah Richardson says, Marshall, I'm somewhat frustrated by the lack of technical information on old Indy cars. I can find information easily in formula one cars like McLaren's MP44, but not cars like the Lotus 56 or even the Penske PC-23. Do you know of any resources that a dedicated fan like myself can use to inform ourselves to the technical know-how of the American brand of open wheel? I absolutely do, Noah. And it's not going to be cheap. Uh, a lot of what you're looking for is contained within books and magazines. Things not on the good old Googs, not on the Bings, and the Netscapes, and not on the good old interwebs. You can find those things. Uh, the two IndyCars you've mentioned, i found plenty. But what you're probably going to want to do 
if you really want to digest a lot, is go back and purchase the cart annuals. Uh, I'm trying to think when they started. I don't know. I don't have them in front of me because I think they're actually in storage. Um, I don't know. Pretty much all the 90s, I think through Champ Car, maybe back a little bit into the 80s as well, late 80s. Going to find a lot of stuff there. Uh, on Track Magazine, which some of you have heard me wax on about. Uh, I have almost all the issues, and I hold on to them because they are just so rich in this kind of information. But there hasn't been a IndyCar equivalent of Giorgio Piola, whose Formula One technical analyses have been just a yearly tradition forever. Uh, I think I own most of those as well. There hasn't been that equivalent of someone you know, really digging into all the all the cars and putting them in a consolidated yearly annual that tells you what they are, all the differences, how this changed from this race to that race. Um, we'll admit I do have a desire to do something like this, to go back and really chronicle indie cars in depth in a technical capacity because it's both a passion and interest, but also right up my experiential alley. Then I'm met by the reality of, so I already work a lot to try and take care of racer magazine um, and my clients. And then I have duties as a husband, which take a lot of time. And unless, frankly, man, someone's paying me uh, to do it, it's just not something that time-wise stands out. The old, well, if you put it into a book, I'm sure people will buy it. I'm sure they would. And that's a two- to three-year process where it's doing nothing but sending money and time out the door. So, again, it's that little pickle of love it. Want to do it? Uh, tell me how to win the lottery. <laughs> and then, man, it's just going to be a life of passion product, projects. And I'm probably still going to be doing everything for Racer because I love what I do. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I hear you, man. Uh, I've invested a lot of money in books over the years and magazines so that when I do have a Penske whatever question, PC-18, I know where to go to get some answers, if not a lot of answers. And uh, then the other thing that's kind of cool, since I've become one of them like media types, is in in some cases I can actually reach out to the people and say, hey, you designed it. Could you answer this thing for me? So that's pretty cool. Um, But, yeah, no, and if you're looking for more like book recommendations, shoot me a DM or an email, and I will do my best to help. Uh Level one from Reddit as we are getting down to the last couple of questions I'm going to grab. Said, recently, if you received more questions related to photography on IndyCar, a topic I'm very interested in as an amateur motorsports photographer. Says, my question today, what's your favorite gear that you use or have used on your photography work? What are your go-to lenses? Uh, which image that you shoot are you most proud of? Uh, favorite gear. I have a small, 
uh, what do I have that I love the most? I think it's my 16 to 35 lens. Uh, that's just always welded to one of my camera bodies, uh, for sure. I just, yeah, that's my friend. It's my buddy. Um, so that's my favorite lens. It's also my favorite gear. Uh, as for my favorite image, I don't know. Uh, I think I mentioned recently, I used to think that I could do some things that were kind of unique because I didn't see it being done very much by most of the people who do this professionally as well and are standing there shooting at the same corners. And now when I look, I see that not only is just about everybody doing the thing that I used to do that I thought was unique, but in many cases they're doing it better and pissing me off in a good way. Like, come on, man. Just, you know, do a slightly worse job to make me feel better. Um, Anyways, but yeah. uh, I, I don't know. If I'm talking just shooting... The thing that I hate most is when people paint portraits with their photography, meaning here's a vehicle intended to go at a high rate of speed in some, with a modicum of control with some sort of hopefully heroic driver doing really cool things. And so what do you do in the most unique speed-based sport on the planet? You kill all of it with a shutter speed that makes it look like everything is frozen in a block of ice. When you can read the Firestone on the tires or whatever brand of tires perfectly, unless there's some reason to do that, it just, I just shake my head and go, what are you, why, what are you doing? Speed is what we have. That's beautiful, right? Why are you intentionally stripping all of it out so that you've painted a portrait with the photo? I mean, why not just take a photo of the car in the paddock, just truly standing still? Why not just take a photo there? Why bother going out to the corners and doing the same thing? So that's my little bend on the topic level one you don't always have to do that you don't always have to do super low shutter speed artsy everything's blurry and whatever but if you're going to go to a motor racing circuit and photograph motor racing vehicles include the thing that makes them unique and that is some action some movement convey the movement (laughs) so yeah that's me Oh, and don't shoot the shitter. That's the other. That's the other absolute rule. Uh, there's going to be Porta Johns in the background, in- inevitably. Try and take your shots where the background doesn't have the shitter in it. So that's my first rule of motor racing photography: don't shoot the shitter. Where are we going here? Uh, Ben Cohen, I love your question. He says, uh, my timeline in office seemed to be pretty well split 50-50 regarding the Super Bowl's halftime performance by J-Lo and Shakira. What result or performance in IndyCar has caused such a polarized response that you can remember? 
I don't know. I seem to think there was this like Indianapolis 500 in 2002 where uh, Paul Tracy won. Um, he says, well, I'm sorry your 49ers didn't pull out the win. I hope that the name drop of J-Lo and Shakira on the MP podcast can help ease the pain of the loss. Well, Ben, I love you for trying. No, uh, I mean, look, this is greedy, right? I wanted to win because we then we'd be equal with the Patriots and the Steelers with six Super Bowls. But we did this little thing called losing. Uh, we did this thing called we didn't earn the win. Uh, and so while it didn't make me happy, I can appreciate the fact that uh, the Chiefs had been 50 years. Come on, man. They're they're overdue, and they deserved it. Uh, as for J-Lo and Shakira, I mean, that's just the most garbage music I've ever heard. So, um, and how do I say this without it sounding like total sexist something? Um, I don't really need to watch scantily clad women shake their selves on television for my pleasure um i'm a really happily happily quadruple in love passionately in love guy and so yeah no disrespect to j-lo or shakira but uh i'm sure that there were plenty who were titillated by their performance um uh, truth here I fell asleep. Not a joke. I fell asleep. I, you know, I, I, I don't look to them for titillation. Uh, all right. Duncan from Idaho. Going to take one or two more of my favorite questiones. Duncan from Idaho. MP is Honda denied us a good fart with Alonzo's recent musings about a 2021 F1 return. Could the IndyCar community have lost its second most beloved acronym. And how does this affect the Honda field uh, with drivers and teams and the Indy 500 seats in play? Duncan, of course, referring to... <sighs> well, we're just going to go with my number one. Uh, I know it's your second most beloved favorite acronym, but we're going to go with the number one. We're still praying that we have spam fart. Uh Schmidt Peterson, Aero McLaren, Fernando Alonso racing team. We're, we're praying, Duncan. Uh, I don't know if it's going to happen, though. Uh, it doesn't. Honestly, it doesn't affect Honda uh, with this. It's another key thing here. If Honda was in a bad way and did not have that many competitive teams or drivers for the 500, it you, there might be a stronger argument to make. Bury the hatchet. Get the guy in the car. You know he could potentially win for you. He'd be a great guy to have. He's not going to change their, you know, realistic odds of winning the race. It'd be one more guy who could win for them. They've got plenty who can win the race. So it's not going to affect Honda at all. Uh, um, uh, I'll throw this in too from the Alonzo thing from our man Ryan Terpstra. Says another media outlet that I would not rate as a first or even second tier source for the motorsports news is reporting that the term veto is too strong for the Alonzo and Dreddy talks, but rather they were put on hold. Um, I would agree with you of that assessment being something that would come from 
a second or third tier source. Uh, the term veto as it was used in our story was not by accident and not something that came as a result of guessing. Uh, where do we go? Where do we go to close this episode? Uh, All right. We're going to go back to Ryan. And after this, we're going to close with Nick Vance. And it's a little, uh, might throw in Bobby Rooney's, but we're going to go with Ryan. And I didn't save this towards the end, hoping that it'd be towards the end and no one would hear it. Uh, it's just actually where Tim placed it. So, uh, also Roberts DG asked a question about being able to update you on what channels Canadian fans can watch IndyCar in 2020. Uh, to my knowledge, there's no change because what they put in place last season was part of a three-year deal. So whatever, however you watched it last year, I think is going to be the same. Um, let's go to Ryan. Offense not intended. But I'm not sure how to ask this without it being offensive. Is Dalton Kellett the least accomplished full-time road to Indy driver to get a partial season or more in IndyCar in the past decade? I can't think of anyone with more lackluster results, or maybe I just don't know Kellett's results well enough. So in this little insight and analysis piece that I've written about the Foyt team in the I'm breaking up, my voice is cracking the uh, very different look that they will have this year Ryan, which I haven't published, I'm not even sure if I will I read some of it to Miller and said, so that as I've mentioned now for like four times so everyone at the Foyt team hates me you think they're going to hate me even more if I decide to finish this to which he said, no Um, they're just going to hate you no matter what so alright, cool um, kind of went through the same thing, the same kind of question process. And the only difference being, as you mentioned, Road to Indy graduate. Uh, there was a period where it looked like super sweet kid Juan Piedrajita was going to get into IndyCar a little bit. And there was a real concern. Because while, he, again, sweetheart of a kid, and he's actually found a home in IMSA in the DPI class. At that time, he was the record holder for, or just about the record holder, maybe he was already, the most road to Indy starts without a win. And again, if he got a win somewhere in one race, maybe I apologize. But it's just a case of, Oh wow, he's you know he's been on the road to Indy way too long. Had done more than a hundred races, and you know was <laughs> the podium was still a a long distance relationship. Had yet to meet it in person. Uh, had communicated and learned of its existence, and maybe built a romance one day, hoping to see it in person. Uh, really wasn't part of the kid's road to indie career so much. Uh, there was a very real possibility for a little while and an even greater concern. Uh, and that's where 
I'm not saying he was a result because that would be inaccurate, but there that's where start some of the yeah, we kind of need to make sure we have some sort of licensing guidelines like you know, we just want to make sure you pass the smell test. Um so I mentioned Juan because I've heard similar concerns about Dalton. I would say the upcoming spring training test, Ryan, it's going to be an important one for Dalton. As I understand it, he's meant to be in the car in day two. I think our boy, Mr. French Fry, is going to be in it in day one. Um, Coda's a somewhat technical place, right? It's going to expose whether you can get it and go quickly or not better than a lot of tracks on the IndyCar calendar. I mean, truly, uh, the the gap between front-running mid-pack competence and totally out to lunch, it's going to demonstrate that if there is anything lacking. I like Dalton. I really like the kid. And I root for him and have rooted for him uh, just on a hashtag me personally level. Uh, he wants to be an IndyCar driver, has wanted to be, has put in, is it seven years now? Something like that. Um, owns the record, though, unfortunately, which we cannot ignore. By my count, 126 starts on the road to Indy. I did check with the road to Indy, and at least based on their data, it's the all-time record for most starts. This is USF 2000, Pro Mazda, Indy, everything. Starting in 2012 through 2019. So the same year the Delara DW12 came out is when Dalton started his road to Indy education uh, i believe that first year was there wasn't a ton of on track stuff but regardless and i'm just going by memory as best i can but if we think back to how long ago the dw12 came out it's been through how many changes and iterations with motor turbo single turbo double this arrow kit, that arrow kit, this, that, Kardashians, on, off, spec, this, the Holes in the floor, no holes in the floor. Arrow screen, <laughs> granted, arrow screen's new, but his first year on the road to Indy, and I think he's 26, 27, was when the DW12 was brand new. Uh, his final year on the road to Indy was the final year before installing the arrow screen. We're talking time to learn and train. He has absolutely done that. The fact that he's coming out of the road to Indy with zero wins, and I think in the press release there was something mentioning uh, finished seventh in the light standing, you know, in a field of like nine. I mean, those are things that we can't overlook. Does it mean Dalton Kellett cannot? race an indy car no does it mean he might not surprise us from time to time no it does not but it does raise justifiable concerns that 
based on seven years of education, based on what the last three, I don't know if it was four, but whatever, three to four years in Indy Lights with no wins. You know, some of those were with Andretti Autosport, right? They've been kicking a lot of butt, winning a lot of races. Not a single one. It's hard to overlook. So I'm continuing to root for Dalton. Sweetheart of a kid. I'm glad we have another Canadian in the series. I'm glad that they're able to bring budget to Foyt. Crucial budget to keep their program moving forward. That has allowed French Fry to get involved. You know, the, everything about Dalton's inclusion in the team is positive. Um, there's no BS when I say that. 100% positivity in Dalton Kellett being in that team. The driving part is separate, though. Everything leading up to Dalton turning his first lap or two, or ten, or fifty at Coda. Everything prior to the point where he pulls away from the pit stall at Coda, one hundred percent positive for what it's done to the team. Allowed the team to continue, help bring in a veteran to hopefully get their engineering direction as good as it can be before he hands off the car to Dalton after what Long Beach, I think, for Bourdais. So that's great. I do appreciate that. I hope for Dalton's sake, he is not dead last. And dead last by a decent margin everywhere we go. And that's because if you look at the field, we're talking, and I realize he's not full-time, but he'll be doing more races in the 14 than any other driver this year. So part-time, but a lot of part-time. If we look at those that he's going up against, well, there aren't many that we can point to and say, all right, well, that's an easy out, and that's an easy out. Um, What do we say? in terms of those that he could be realistically faster than is that again, we, because we don't know, is it Alex Palou? I'd be surprised. Is it Ben Hanley at dragon speed? You know, uh, that little team, <laughs> they, they've only, only impressed, right? Maybe Sage Karam, right? Maybe and not because Sage lacks talent, but because, you know, he really hasn't done road racing for a while in an Indy car. Dryden Reinbold certainly having to knock off the rust. Could we see, knowing that Sage is doing a part-time deal as well, could we see Dalton and Sage probably towards the back of the grid? Yeah, yeah. Is there anyone else I can see where I think they might be back there? Not really. So I'll just finish this subject, Ryan, by saying, I've heard that he's going to have a pretty significant and watchful eye on him at Coda. And if he's not getting up to speed quickly, or he's getting in people's way, or his lap times after he's had, you know, 
enough time to what would be considered a reasonable amount of time to get things figured out uh, if he's not, you know, close enough. I think you might see race control intervene. That saddens me. But I'd also say I've seen the kid go pretty quickly in an LMP2 car. Those aren't easy to drive. Uh, Those require some commitment to extract speed from. Um, So, you know, he wasn't bad in Indy Lights. He just wasn't winning caliber. He has won races in LMP2, but that was last year when there were two cars. No joke, two cars in the class. But, again, able to adapt, but... This is not going to be an easy year. I hope Coda goes well, because if it doesn't, there might be bigger questions raised as to whether he's going to be licensed to go race uh, or hold on to that license uh, when it's time. And for everyone's sake, him, the team, his family, I really do hope that things go well for him and we see more from him in an IndyCar which sometimes happens. Sometimes drivers really just find a connection with an Indy car that maybe they didn't in some of the other cars they've driven in lower categories. Who knows? Maybe we will be surprised, but I hope at minimum he can blend in, not get in anyone's way, and maybe surprise us a little bit. Uh, let's see. Bobby Rooney, I'll take yours. So based on what you know behind the scenes and your gut, you know, if I, if my gut, if my brain was as big as my gut, boy, I'd be smart. What percentage chance would you assign to the falling drivers being back in their same seats next year? Oh, you just want the drivers to hate me. Will power again? I think that's a big question mark, right? If uh, if Pagano ends up staying, I think McLaughlin. If McLaughlin goes well, I think Will Will's going to have to have a stellar year. I really just have a feeling that Will has to prove something this year. Finishing fifth or sixth in the championship, yeah, I think he's going to need to be a top two guy in the f- overall championship uh, to really sleep easy into the offseason, um, get invited back, however we should put it. Ryan Hunter Ray? I would absolutely expect him to be there. Scott Dixon, same thing. Takuma Sato, I hope so. I think it's more just a Takuma thing if he wants to keep doing it. I hope so. I've really come to enjoy him. Uh, you said Vakvich. That's a good one. Uh, Vakvich. That sounds like a bad guy. Zach Veach, if he can get this extension he's been talking about with uh, the Group 1000 Gainbridge folks, I can't give you a gut feeling on that because I just don't. That's straight business. If they have been able to come to terms, then that's going to be a deal. I need to check in with him on that. And then the final one you ask is Simon Pagano. I, yeah, I think that's also a little bit dependent. Uh, we know that the McLaren SP team wanted him. I have wanted him. Uh, they've got themselves... I think they wanted him and were really set on trying to get him uh, for 21 when they had Hinch as their lead driver. Uh, I think with Pato in place, 
I think it's really going to be incumbent upon Pato to do the things we think he can do, which is be a leader, be just quick as a bunny, and, and upset uh, expectations for the team. Just whatever, yeah, they're good, but, man, not great. If that kid can do what he should be able to do, uh, I don't know if they're going to be staring at Pagano as being as coveted. Oliver Askew as well, hoping that he has a really strong year. Only question is if Oliver struggles at all, would pursuing Pagano to pair with Pato for 21 be a thing? Possibly. Again, I mean, Simon is someone they should be pursuing in general. Uh, that is a team leader. That is someone who, uh, yeah, is just going to be pretty darn awesome. So, question mark there as well. Hunter Ray, I think, for sure is going to be back. Same with Dixie. You kind of highlighted some others that whether through business or other opportunities or maybe not getting asked back to the dance, uh, could be could have reasons to worry for sure. Let's see. We're going to go to our last question here from our man, Nick Vance. And it's a bit of a long one, but I just wanted to read it because he took the time to write it. And then we're going to say farewell. And I'm texting my wife, who's asking me to bring her some food. Uh, Nick, MP, I'm about to express an unpopular opinion. So this is the last you hear from me. I've been overrun by the masses with their pitchforks and torches. Why do so many people worldwide think that Formula One is the best, the greatest, and in the eyes of many, the only acceptable form of professional racing? been a racing fan since I was a kid. I've never been able to get behind F1. It honestly bores me. The amount of money that goes into the whole program is absurd. Don't get me wrong. Tracks are cool, but the races seem short. The on-track action is mediocre at best. And one of the three teams wins, with the other two more often than not, on the podium, and consistently. That's not to say there aren't some similarities to IndyCar. For honest, most times, either Penske, Andretti, or Ganassi, cars will win in podium. But there's so many other times when RLL wins, a Meyer-Shank podiums, there's some exciting upset stories. He says a Haas or a Williams will never podium. It just seems so skewed, and it just isn't exciting. He says, on top of that, the price of admission to a race, and I mean just to get through the gate, forget having a seat, is astronomical, and if you want to grab a photo with your favorite driver or get an autograph, you better wait in line for six hours or be related to royalty because it's not happening. Yet more often than not, so many people turn their noses up at IndyCar, and F1 can do no wrong. Hashtag me personally. I think IndyCar offers better quality racing and a greater fan experience. Maybe you can enlighten me, but I've just never been able to see the appeal. And no matter how hard I try, I can never get into a season. As always, I wish you and your wife the best. Well, thank you, Nick. I can't really argue with you, man. Uh, if you are an American, if you are in America, and IndyCar is the thing that you know first, probably struggle these days to really burrow into F1 and say, oh, this is amazing. Better. If you're maybe come here from somewhere else, and have followed F1 and come to learn of IndyCar while here, as I've heard many folks uh, share. They enjoy and appreciate IndyCar, but F1 is really that special thing. I'd throw that out, first of all, 
as something to acknowledge. You know, uh, you've heard me say recently, Rush, my favorite lifelong band. While they're not the first band that I heard as a kid, they were my first, like, real serious favorite band. I don't, I could, I've lost count of how many people over the years have told me they're the worst. Lead singer, the worst. And it's just, again, the worst. Well, doesn't matter to me because I fell in love with them at whatever, eight years old or something. You're never going to move me off that block. Same thing here, man. Uh, folks came into F1, and that was a thing, first form of racing that they loved, grew up with, yada, yada. You're not going to argue them away from it. Uh, same with IndyCar. <laughs> How many of you all uh, have IndyCar as your first love, and you will not hear NASCAR, F1, IMSA, whatever is being better? I think that's just human thing, first of all, Nick. So that's probably part of it. I do enjoy modern F1, not as much as I enjoyed late 70s F1 when I first learned of it, watched it, especially the 1980s, which I was really kind of my era in the early to mid-90s. i super fortunate to have seen the dawn of the Senna and Prost era as well and followed that like it was just my air and water and space. Substance. There we go. Sustenance. Would say for sure we haven't had a great rivalry for a while, so that's a thing, right? The Hakkinen versus Schumacher. Uh, that hasn't been around. The Alonso versus Schumacher. The well, there was also the Schumacher versus nobody because he pretty much beat everybody for a really long time. But it's been a while since we we've, we've had a proper building year after year rivalry. We did have Hamilton versus Rosberg for a little while. We could say there's Hamilton versus Vettel, but A, Ferrari hasn't been up to measure over the full season. And also we've seen Sebastian just making a lot of errors of late. Heck, we've seen Valtteri Botas as I mispronounce his last name, give Hamilton, you know, pretty serious run for his money at times. But, you know, we're kind of in the Schumacher-Ferrari era of mid to late 2010s with it's the Mercedes-Hamilton time. And I know that Rosberg got a title in there. I understand all that. But we're just in a period where, yeah, uh, we really hope and pray that young Max Verstappen and young Mr. Albon as well can make the Red Bull team more competitive on a consistent basis to take the fight to Mercedes and Hamilton. And the same with Ferrari with young Charles Leclerc alongside Vettel. But I can't argue with you, man. Uh, do I think Lewis is going to win another title? Yeah. Why wouldn't he? He's the best driver in the series. He's with the best team, and again, got to beat the man to be the man. So I hear you. What I would just encourage is Formula One races do a phenomenally better job at 
the explaining of strategy and really because there's not often a ton of passing for the competitive, you know, the, the, the leading positions, you know, real upfront, a hard fight for second place. You know, we don't get a ton of that. And so in the absence of frequent passing and excitement there, you can often get some pretty interesting commentary on strategy, be it pit stop, be it tire usage, which type of tires, um, then get into just a lot of the little nuances that they kind of need to explore to bring you exciting things to process during the race. It's a bit of a well-worn thing, Nick, but yeah, an F1 race tends to be a bit more chess than checkers. You know, you're, you're having to not look at like the big table slams and the big showy demonstrations. You're looking for subtleties on the enjoyment front, but it's not that different from sports car racing, endurance racing as well in that capacity where the drivers are important. The cars are important, but so often the people on the timing stand really play a great role. I mean, that does happen in IndyCar too. Not saying it doesn't, but this is a place where you're having to look for the smaller stories to amuse yourself during a race quite often. And it's accepting the fact that it's not as thrilling as it once was, but I would not ever want to turn my back on it. So knowing that you've never fallen in love with it, that's okay. The fact that you've been a lover of IndyCar and are shouting it to the heavens, it's totally normal. Don't stop. Just say, give it another shot. Uh, that Albon kid, I can't wait to see him this year and how he does. I love the fact that he's gone from more or less wanting to quit to looking like he's really something special, just not developing as fast as his teammate. Uh, So there's some stuff there, man. You know what is also here? The end of the show. So thank you. It is 6.51. I need to go look after my lady. I need to, what do I need to do? Get some dinner going? We got about two and a half hours sleep last night, so... I'm appreciating my Samuel Smith beer and need to get some rest coming up here soon. Uh, Final thing that just came onto my radar, we might, just might, get some insight as to who will be driving one of the Carlin cars tomorrow, probably today when you're listening to this on Friday. At a time where I've mentioned before, in terms of press releases going out, mid to late Friday is known as taking out the trash time. So... All righty, that's all I got. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, Jeremiah Morell. Send me that DM with your email address, and we will send you some good stuff. We've got a brand new hamburger and french fry design that uh, might look fancy on you. So if you want that one, let us know. But shoot me that DM, and I look forward to speaking to you next week, probably after spring training. And that, I'm guessing, is going to be the major topic of 
conversation.